You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I am honored to be joined by Dr. Emil Natley, a former CIA senior intelligence officer and a research professor and director of the Global and National Security Policy Institute at the University of New Mexico. Mr. Natley is also a National Intelligence Council associate and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a, a vast career with significant experience in the area of intelligence, with particular focus on Islamism, terrorism, and the Arab states of the Middle East. So I am really looking forward to a detailed and interesting discussion with you, Mr. Nakhleh. So without further ado, I would like to thank you for joining us. And I think I would suggest that given your very rich and varied career, that we might kick off by talking about that career and your years with the CIA uh, focusing on counterterrorism. My first question, I suppose, is a rather straightforward one. And that is what encouraged you initially at the outset to pursue this career in the field of counterterrorism? What were the initial steps that you followed to end up in this line of work? Thank you very much first for having me, Minister. It's a pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you. Very briefly, I was born and raised in Nazareth. I always say two of us come from Nazareth. One was crucified and I've been running ever since. But I went to school in the United States and my degree, graduate degrees, focused on on both the Middle East and Islam. Mm -hmm. And as I began to study Islam, then I began to see the rising notions of terrorism, first in the 70s, and then since the 70s. And the biggest, of course, uh, event in the 1970s was 1979, the year 1979, when radicalism and extremism began to get hold of the region. In, In Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Afghanistan. And I was still in academia at the time. I was a a professor and I wanted to pursue that to see what is this broad context of Islam that gives rise to some elements to pursue violence. That was an intriguing question because it was not just a straight political question or military question or security question. Throughout my career, I uh, belong to this view, a broad view of security, a broad view of terrorism, ranging from cyber all the way to food and water security. So this has been driving my career. So when those events developed, then I began to say, okay, a kid doesn't get up in the morning. I say, thank you, Lord. It's a clear day in Albuquerque and New Mexico. I want to be a terrorist. It just doesn't happen that way. 
So there is a context that drives that. There are variables, there are factors that drive a young man or woman to pursue violence as a means for their whatever political goals they have, right? And so after spending a few years in academia and going out as a Fulbright uh, scholar to the Gulf region. I was the first ever American senior Fulbright scholar in Bahrain and in those new states of the Persian Gulf, the Arab states. And then I began also to see their education. So I began to focus, okay, what kind of education drives these kids? So in Saudi Arabia, I began to look at the textbooks and then began to see the connection. And so when the opportunity came for the CIA to approach me and I gladly made the migration uh, from academia to the US government. And it was absolutely the most enlightening part of my career because I had the opportunity to clearly focus on those key questions, societal, social, economic, cultural, linguistic, religious, the different interpretations of religious narratives. And so that's how I ended up moving from academia to the U.S. government and to pursue uh, the uh, study and research on Islamism, radicalism, and terrorism. Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating transition. And I wonder, in the context of your background and your broad perspective and interest in everything from education to ideology to religion, was that a prevailing view within the CIA? Did you feel that you were maybe a little bit different to colleagues or were you bringing fresh perspectives then? Were, they, were your colleagues coming from a harder security perspective, perhaps? First off, I think I worked with some of the most expert, pleasant, knowledgeable colleagues. That, that's a, uh, an introductory statement, but it's a correct statement. Secondly, I was brought in to develop expertise on Islam at CIA. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, so two, two basically, I was uh, brought in for two basic functions. One, to develop expertise on political Islam at the agency. And then two, to develop expertise in regional analysis, Middle East regional analysis. And the reason for that was that we had analysts who were very steeped in their expertise on particular countries. So we would have an analyst focusing on Egypt or, or Iran or Syria or Afghanistan or Jordan without a really a real view of what was happening in the region. So I said, you know, it's not really rocket science that interconnectivity exists in the region. So what happens in Egypt, of course, affects what happens in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Saudi. And so it, it made sense for us to have both the, the state country expertise uh, plus the regional, put it in a regional context. Mm -hmm. And so when we started uh, focusing on building expertise in Islam, which led to the PISAB, which is the 
the office that I helped create the political Islam strategic analysis program, which became a major office like other regional, big regional offices. And the point was that the whole Islamic world is a vast territory, but the first point is that it's never monolithic. So there are many Islams, many Muslim worlds, many Islamic narratives. Yet we have this common theme that it produced some of those narratives produced terrorism. So I asked the question, why? Mm -hmm. And then the, my colleagues then began to kind of come along and follow that line of reasoning and thinking. And, uh, you know, when I created the office, the director asked me, what do you need for it? I said, so much money in the beginning. He said, no problem. I said, then I said, I need about 12 men and women, which, whom I will call the founding mothers and fathers of this office from throughout the agency. And so I went, I got them in different expertise, economic analysts, leadership analysts, religious analysts, anthropology analysts, and then put them all together and say, we need to take an interdisciplinary approach to this issue. And you can't understand terrorism in Indonesia unless you understand the background of Islam in Indonesia. And, mm -hmm. and so this was how it started. And the US government in general became, because I had to brief uh, this office before we created it all around town. And the US government in general supported the creation of that office. And as a result, CIA became, the good news is that it became the only agency with expertise on political Islam. And the bad news, it remains the only agency with that, with that type that's, of- That's really interesting. I mean, I mean, your perspective is unique because you were the founding director of this section within the, the CIA. And I was gonna ask you, um, maybe you've sort of answered it, but I was gonna ask you, you know, how, I suppose, in hindsight now and reflecting back on, because it's effectively several decades since it was established, how would you assess its impact on U.S. policy in the region or even within the agency? How do you think it has fared in terms of meeting the objectives that you would have set out all those years ago? Yeah, you know, I want to remain very objective and not really biased about it mm -hmm. uh, because I created that office it became really the center of education on Islam. Mm -hmm. So whenever a question came up at the White House or by any senior secretary about Islam, they would turn to ask their briefer to contact PISAB and offer their view on that. So PISAB became really the center of education. I mean, I viewed myself when I would brief very, very senior policymakers from number one down. I thought uh, I viewed my briefings as really enlightening their knowledge and expanding their knowledge about this broad context that gives rise. So why, for example, we had so many from Saudi Arabia? So then we began to look into the Sunni schools of jurisprudence in Islam, in Sunni Islam. And so we discovered that the most radical, intolerant, narrow-minded school existed in Arabia from the 18th century down, which came to be known as Wahhabi Salafi Islam. 
So that's something that the government did not really focus on. But it also gave policymakers really uh, a good handle on why Saudi Arabia. Why 15 of the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia? Why did they, they did not come from Uzbekistan, which is a Muslim country, or from Nigeria, Northern Nigeria? Mm-hmm. But, so that was the value, I think, of that office. But in retrospect, first, I wish we had established it way before 9 11. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I wish it included more other government analysts. In other words, we had, I would deal very closely with state, with DIA, uh, with the FBI, but we needed a, probably a more comprehensive, wider participation. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. So, I, I mean, I suppose from what you're saying, the warning signs were there, but perhaps the multi-agency cross-government approach that was needed is maybe more recognizable in hindsight post 9-11. And in terms of 9-11, I mean, obviously that is the, the sort of moment in, in modern history that everybody looks to as, as a real turning point in, in terms of the real devastating effects of Islamic terrorism. I mean, how do you assess the, the response within the CIA, but also, you know, across um, the U.S. administration in response to that. Was there a shift? You know, you were still actively involved at that stage. How would you assess the response post 9-11? Well, I will only talk, of course, uh, please permit me to to talk only in general terms, Mm -hmm. uh, because as you said, I was kind of the uh, thick of it. I would say that the immediate response was to prevent, and we have to take it in the context of the time, correct? The immediate response was to prevent another attack on the homeland. That was a devastating attack on American soil. And so the president's focus at the time and and our agency focus at the time was to immediately get as much information as possible by whatever means possible, through whatever methods possible to hopefully prevent another attack. And so that was the immediate, another spectacular attack. And then to go after the group because immediately we knew it was Al-Qaeda. And in fact, by October already, Osama bin Laden had told us in his first major statement, it was Al-Qaeda. And so therefore the immediate goal in order to, as I said, to prevent another attack was to attack the, the group that attacked us and the country that housed that group. So that was the immediate, you know, in retrospect, we might say, well, we should have done differently and so on. But at the time that was the goal. And so the group that attacked us was Al-Qaeda. They were housed in Afghanistan. The Taliban hosted them and supported them. So we went both after Al-Qaeda, wherever they were, and Afghanistan. And that was, so we were caught up a month after uh, September 11 with the war in Afghanistan. 
So at that time, that was, it took about a couple of years, I would say, before policymakers began to calm down and began to look at the wider context. That was the issue because, you know, when, when you are hit first, if you have a flood or fire in the house, your immediate uh, goal is to get yourself and your family out safely and to put, to put out the fire and, and to stop the flood. But after a while, then you say, well, gee, we should look at whether we should have built in this place in the first place. Should we have built in a, in a flood zone? Should we have built in an area that is prone to fires or drought? That, those questions come later. Right. So the immediate area was to deal with the immediate attack and its aftermath. Then after that, we began to look about, let's look at Muslim societies, Muslim communities, why the vast majority of Muslims don't engage in violence and terrorism. And why is that few? And where does that few come from? So that began to lead to exploring different strategies, you know, from engaging moderate voices within Islam to engaging Muslim societies through specific projects that would eliminate the factors that give rise to terrorism. So we began then to look at the factors that give rise to terrorism, you know, from repression to unemployment, to poverty, to youth alienation, to all kinds of, of other factors that, but that took, I would say, about two to three years mm -hmm. before we moved into that phase. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I think the reaction post 9-11, which we all witnessed, was, as, as you've pointed out, perfectly logical, perfectly understandable. And of course, there was a public demand also um, for a strong response from from political leaders and policymakers, and then as the dust settled, perhaps opportunity to to look at a, a broader strategy. I suppose the question is, when you adopt a very tough response in certain countries in the region, of course, that then feeds into the grievance narratives, which have become so effective as a recruitment tool by many of these extremist and terrorist organizations. Did you see that? And was that something that concerned you uh, as time went on? Well, of course, of course, because the grievance narrative was part of what we were talking about, that, that I know we are all angry. I used to tell our senior policymakers, Mr. President or Mr. Vice President, but the fact is we need to take a different approach to what drives this anger. And the other aspect of it is not only the anger and the grievance and the alienation, but also the messaging. I mean, Osama bin Laden was a master at messaging. I mean, one time I, I mentioned to a very, very senior policymaker in my briefing that we should learn from Osama bin Laden how to develop our messaging. Well, of course, he did not like that, that suggestion at all. But the fact is, that was what made Osama bin Laden's message resonate so well among Muslim youth. And just very briefly, right, his, his message was always the same was always very clear, was always four points, consisted the same four points. 
This was the message he started with in 9-11, and this is the message that radicals still voice today. And the four points are, one, Islam is under attack, Islam as a faith and as a territory. So he would say, see all the wars that Western imperialism and Western crusaders are waging? They are not waging wars against Korea or Philippines. They are waging wars against Islamic countries. So Islam as a religion and territory is under attack. The second point he said, if it is under attack, we know who the enemy is. And he always said the enemy, whether it's in Iraq or Iran or Africa or the Middle East, is the United States and its crusade supporters, Western supporters, and Zionism and headed by Israel. So this is the, the enemy. Later, he expanded that to include the near enemy. This what he considered the far enemy. And the near enemy he considered were Islamic leaders who were un-Islamic in their behavior. So he, he talked about the Abdullahs and, and the Musharrafs and those uh, and the Mubaraks, those Muslim leaders who, in his view, although they were Muslim leaders, but they were behaving in non-Islamic way. So the enemy is clear. The far enemy first, which is the most powerful, and the near enemy, which is supported by the far enemy. So that's the second point. And the third point, then he said, if we are under attack, we know who the enemy is, then jihad becomes a duty and a responsibility on all Muslims, right? And so that resonated and jihad became not only just the jihad of the self to be a better Muslim, but he said jihad in all of its means. If you are wealthy, you can contribute. If you are a writer, you can write. If you are a foot soldier, you can fight. And if you are a technician or expert, you can use your expertise to do jihad. And so that was the third point. And the fourth point of his message, component of his message, was that this war between Islam and its uh, enemies is going to last until the final days. It's like one time my wife uh, told me way back, uh, can't we give him uh, $50 billion and then shut him up? Well, you know, I said it was not about money. Uh, for him, it's about a millenarian conflict until the final days. And so he repeated that message from 1996 all the way till this very day by his followers, of course. And so that message, you know, did not require a PhD in Islamic history to understand. It was geared to high school students, high school dropouts, and high school graduates. That's basically, when you look at in the uh, first decade of this century, when you look at Saudi Arabia and you find that 48% of their high school students dropped out of high school. So bin Laden addressed his messages not to Islamic scholars in France or the United States or Africa or Egypt. He addressed the message to those people who immediately hear it, understand it, and go and act on it. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting. So, I mean, obviously you have written extensively about the, the different strands of Islam and the different dynamics and nuances between the different sects and also amongst different countries in the Middle East and indeed globally. But these seem to be kind of common strands that appeal across the board. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is fair to say, you know, there are different narratives of Islam. So the Muslims of Indonesia are not the same as the Muslims of Egypt. Uh, the Muslims of Saudi Arabia are not the same as the Muslims of London or Albuquerque, New Mexico or Moscow. So there are different narratives by different Muslims worldwide. So when we talk about the Islamic world, it's just really as a shorthand. Unfortunately, many of our policymakers got caught up in this. You know, if there is a, a problem, I will get a, a tasking or a question from the White House. Well, Emil, what does the Islamic world think about this? Well, I said, I just briefed you yesterday. There's no such a thing as an Islamic world. So which Muslims do you want to know about? But the common theme, and that's again where it's interpreted differently, is jihad. So jihad is part of Islamic faith, right? So every Muslim hears the word jihad, but interprets it differently. And so what Osama bin Laden said, well, jihad, now that we are under attack, it should be much more activist rather than just religious. In other words, you want to be a better Muslim, so you sacrifice, you give alms during Ramadan, you fast during Ramadan, you do the Hajj once in your, in your lifetime. Well, that's good. That makes you better Muslim. But he said, we are now in an emergency situation. We are at war. And so, so that's how he began to get so many of these youth. I mean, I you know, the opportunity at the agency being uh, involved in this gave me the opportunity to visit almost all Muslim countries, majority and minority, other than Iran, because I couldn't go to Iran. But, and interviewed and talked to hundreds of people. And so I was in a village in Pakistan, outside Lahore, and these two kids were going to do jihad in Kashmir. So I asked him, with their father sitting there, I said, so do you know anybody in Kashmir? No. So why are you going to go to Kashmir? He said, well, I'm going to jihad for the Islamic cause. I said, you might be killed there, but if you come back safely, what do you do next? He said, I'll go to Chechnya. I started laughing. I said, Chechnya? What the hell do you do in Chechnya? Oh, he said, there are Muslims living there. I said, how do you get to Chechnya? Oh, I have people who will provide me with travel documents and aid and support, and I get to Chechnya, and from there to Bosnia, and from there to wherever. So that concept of activist, violent jihad, warlike jihad, began to spread among the youth. And not everyone who was alienated, who, who was unemployed, or who was poor, did up doing jihad, but few began to believe in this message. And so it made it even, even more challenging for us to deal with these communities, you see. And in the beginning, we went after Islamic scholars. And I realized, I told policymakers, look, these Islamic scholars, whatever they write, it's not understood by their high school dropout. I said, I myself with a PhD, I was sitting there listening to a lecture by a very famous Muslim scholar 
I said, I struggled to stay awake. I said, how, how do you expect the young man or woman to listen to their message? So they said, okay, we'll reduce that message and lower the vocabulary level of the... I said, give me a break. This is just doesn't work. And it didn't work. So this is not the way to develop and convey counter-narratives, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, language, obviously, and communication is key. And you've really highlighted that in terms of the clarity and the consistency of Bin Laden's message in particular. And obviously, there have been hundreds and thousands of his followers and others who have promulgated those messages very effectively ever since 9-11 and will continue to do so. And you have written and publicly commented on some of the language um, used by the West, I guess, in analyzing and commentating and commenting on all of this. You have criticized the use of the term radical Islam by a recent president of the United States. What is it about that term? I mean, you've described it as simplistic and and also, I think, racially inflammatory. For the benefit of our listeners, I think it might be interesting to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I started from a simple fact. And the simple fact was that we have in the world 1.6, today 1.7, close to 1.8 billion Muslims, right? And if we have a small percentage, let's say point one, point half or percentage point of, of these vast Muslims engage in violence, then, and the other 99%, even if you go up to 1% of violently driven activists, what about the other 99%? Well, we began to survey them, right? Public opinion polls, the Pew poll, the Gallup poll, and all BBC poll, and all kinds of other polls, right? And we began to discover that vast majorities of these Muslims, right? They want to live. They want to educate their kids. They want to pay their bills. They want to put food on the table. They want to get jobs for their kids. They were not even interested in politics. They were not interested in violence. So why lump them all together and say radical Islam? Because that, now, first, it's untruthful. It's not really a correct term. And it is pejorative term. And it is really, it hurts our efforts to reach out to the vast majority of Muslims. Because how do we engage radical groups? Well, we don't, right? But if we describe them all as radical Islam, that means it affects our engagement. It begins to uh, uh, help us create a wider uh, uh, source of recruits. And I said, well, let's be more specific. We can say a radical group or a terrorist group. And so even the war on terror, I did not even this what the global war on terror. I did not even like the term and I told the president that. And so I said, we have to be much more specific. And I know we have domestic politics. Like you said earlier, there were demands here to go after them. And I said, that's fine. But them, we have to define who's them. Mm -hmm. And the terms and the vocabulary are very important. I mean, when our president, by mistake, honestly, and he admitted it, he used the word crusades 
well, he had no idea that it would conjure up that history. I mean, to us, history is a dead thing. In the Middle East and the Islamic world, history is a living entity. Mm-hmm. And, and so when they talk about the Crusades or Saladin and so on, as if it happened just yesterday. And we, we find it difficult in the West to understand this concept, the significance and currency of history. And so terminology becomes, a, and that's what helped Bin Laden develop. You know, for Islam, for Muslims, Arabic is unlike any other language because they believe Arabic is the language that God through Gabriel spoke to Muhammad. He did not unlike the way God spoke to to Jesus or to Moses. He did not speak to Jesus in Aramaic or to Moses in ancient Hebrew. But Muslims believe that he spoke to Muhammad in Arabic and so correct Arabic, the language of the Quran. So when Bin Laden would give a talk, he always used correct Arabic, grammatically correct, language from the Quran, always attached it to a quotations from different surahs or chapters in the Quran. That resonated very, very well with his Muslim listeners. And so that's why one of my advice, with the advice I gave to the government here, let's not get engaged in debates among Muslims. We are not Muslims. So let's not engage in that debate. Let them engage in that debate. So that's why one of the reasons why I said we have to be very careful about terminology. Mm-hmm. And so what is the correct terminology? What type of language should be used? You know, there are many, many suggestions. You know, one, one might be terrorist group. In other words, reduce the terminology to specific groups or people, right? So if somebody comes from Bureda in Saudi Arabia and who is a terrorist, well, we can't say the Bureda people are terrorists. So let's focus on the Muslims of Bureda are terrorists, right? So let's be more specific about, and certain groups, by the way, might be engaged, some of their actions might be terrorists, but there are other or some of their members might engage in terrorist activity, but not the whole group. So yeah. we have to be kind of, and that helps us. It's, it's more challenging to us because it requires more intelligence gathering and more nuanced knowledge of the language and therefore more resources. And then ultimately will help us target and track those nasty Uh, people who commit terrors. It is complex. And if you look at a range of groups um, in in the Middle East, I mean, uh, and indeed beyond, um, you know, terrorist organizations often have a political wing which can be used and manipulated to uh, to give it legitimacy, can be used as a recruitment tool, uh, can be used to control the political system, media, etc. So, you know, it, it's challenging, I think, to yeah. navigate that. Um, I know that, I mean, for example, Muslim Brotherhood, you know, is obviously a group that is very firmly associated with political Islam and a lot of the narratives behind it. But, you know, you have argued that the Muslim Brotherhood should not be designated as a terrorist organization, which for some people I think might be a little bit confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's a very good question, Minister, but that's always a complicated question about the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, I spent years studying the Muslim Brotherhood and interviewing many of their leaders in Egypt and elsewhere. But so these are uh, a couple of basic points. The Muslim Brotherhood is the largest, the oldest, the most organized Sunni Muslim group in the world. It started in 1928 by a school teacher and moved on. The second point is that, you know, my analysts and I studied over 100 Islamic political parties worldwide. Almost all or 99% of Sunni Muslim parties from Turkey to Kenya to Malaysia to Indonesia to Uzbekistan to Tajikistan to all over the Middle East, most of those ideologically are grounded in Muslim Brotherhood ideology. So the Muslim Brotherhood ideology underpins almost all Sunni Islamic parties worldwide in the Middle East and elsewhere. And of course, one of the people, Maududi, uh, started a branch in Pakistan and way in the 40s, you see. And so the Muslim Brotherhood, its policy always was two parts. Al-Islam huwa al-hal, Islam is the solution. And secondly, you Islamize society from below and the rest would follow, you know. It's like here the baseball field, you build it and they will come. And they say you Islamize society from the bottom and then regimes and governments begin to follow, right? So that was their entire philosophy. Islam is a solution. Part of that, because he defined Islam as, as what we call the three Ds. Al-Islam, Deen, Wadunya, Wadawla, three Ds. Islam is a society, religion, and, and a state. It's a comprehensive definition of Islam. So it was basically Islamizing society. So the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamizing society. Then for a while in Egypt, they began, of course, in every regime, if you kind of just briefly remember history, uh, the history of Egypt, from the monarchy down, they always had, initially, when the monarch or the president comes in, they have good relationship with that leader. And then towards the end, they have bad relationship and violence occurs, right? And so by the early 90s, the Muslim Brotherhood really, I viewed it much more dangerous than after 93, 94, because before 93, they would say, well, these so-called Muslim leaders have to be toppled. But then after 93, they decided they couldn't do it, right? Military, they couldn't do it. They were not as strong as the regime. The regime always wins. The security services always win. So they decided to participate in elections. And in fact, they participated in Egyptian elections. And, and one of those elections, they got the largest minority, almost 88 members in the Egyptian legislature. So after 93 then, the Muslim Brotherhood and its Muslim parties worldwide began to participate in elections. I mean, I went to Malaysia and I studied why did they participate in elections? They said, well, this is how we are going to change if we are committed to gradual change from within, 
regardless of the particular regime. In other words, not violence, but through the ballot box rather than through bullets. And that's why then I concluded then the Muslim Brotherhood and its loosely affiliated parties, ideologically affiliated parties, then can be a force for gradual change in Muslim societies. You can bring in a secular, Western secular democratic party and create a party along those lines in a Muslim country. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It will always be marginalized. So you need to work through mainstream, I call them the mainstreamers. I don't use radical, I mean, moderate or extreme, just mainstreamers, the mainstream Muslim parties. And so the Muslim Brotherhood played that role. And that's why I thought, well, it would be a mistake really to lump the Muslim Brotherhood with Al-Qaeda or with more recently ISIS and declare it a terrorist organization. And I mean, it's an interesting point you make. And, you know, I'm Irish um, and we have a significant experience of bringing in former terrorists into our political system and, uh, and legitimizing them through that process. And it has arguably been pretty successful in Ireland. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder how you adjudicate and it, we're probably still in the process but how do you adjudicate the the success if you like of that process of bringing some of these islamist groups into the political system in countries yeah. like egypt but elsewhere as well yeah well it worked for a short while and then it didn't work right and i give you an example you probably are are not familiar with and that is hamas's election in 2006 I always say till this very day that the conflict we have today have had four or five wars we've had between Israel and Gaza. I mean, basically between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Go back to 2006. Mm -hmm. In 2006, when uh, Hamas won the elections in Gaza, it was honestly uh, not for us, but for other intelligence agencies it was an intelligence failure because including even Mossad and the Shin Bet in Israel, who know the Palestinians more than any other intelligence agency in the world, they predicted that Hamas would lose. I mean, we are talking about Mossad and, and the Shin Bet, that is the, the key intelligence agencies in Israel. And some elements in the U.S. government and some elements in the West also thought that Hamas will not win because we were listening to the regime in Ramallah rather than knowing what was going on in Gaza. And we were listening to Dahlan, who was kind of really, excuse my French, he's a really a thug. This is not terribly scientific word, but he was well paid operative who was after his own interest and he began to feed us this line that Hamas is going to lose and then I'll come over there and take over later on of course we had a repeat of the same story with Chalabi and the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. I mean Chalabi fed us the same lie really right and so when Hamas won and the agency wrote a big brief to the president about, oh my gosh, this is doom and gloom. What are we going to do? 
And I was a lone voice really in the government that argued that based on our contacts with Hamas before, Hamas supporters before the election, that we got the clear impression that they were interested in engaging Israel. And one person told me, Jihad, he said, well, that's great. But he said, we are more interested in jobs, in food, in electricity, in water, and we can get all of those except through engaging Israel. So we will be ready to engage Israel if we want. So I wrote a piece and I made that argument. And I said, let's give them 24 hours or 48 hours. I said, we can always pull the rock from under them. But if we give them 48 hours and we see no real signs of engaging the Israelis, I said, we and the Israelis can always pull the rug from under. And, and very senior policymakers agreed with that argument. But it lasted really 24 hours, not because uh, we, they did not engage, but because that argument was overtaken by others, both in Washington, Tel Aviv, and elsewhere, and that attempt to engage Hamas did not work. And so Hamas concluded here they went through elections and they promised that they would engage and nobody gave them a chance. This is not to say they don't engage in terrorism, you understand, but I always believe that that election was pivotal had we adopted a different policy. That's fascinating. And well, obviously, uh, things haven't changed so much in the intervening period, given that's happening at the moment. I mean, it probably can be argued that, you know, some of the the people that you reference, grassroots and supporters, perhaps have been let down by the leadership of Hamas. But that's perhaps an argument for a different day, because uh, we could spend quite some time talking about that particular conflict. But maybe just to pick up on your point, because you've mentioned specifically, again, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts in terms of where the current threat lies from those organizations. I mean, obviously, we have seen in both the United States and across Europe several lethal attacks by returning foreign fighters from Syria and Iraq. You know, so curious to hear your view on that threat and indeed the threat within the region ongoing from those organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think the threat of terrorism is changing, but it is continuing. So for us to say, okay, we are leaving Afghanistan, goodbye, we took care of everything, we took care of Iraq, honestly, we did not take care of anything, right? The threat of terrorism is still there. It's changing. And it's adapting. I mean, terrorist organizations have been great at adapting to changing conditions. They are rebranding themselves. So we say, look at what's happening. Let's say HTS, Harakat Tahrir Sham in Syria, which is an amalgam of different groups, but they are rebranding themselves. And I say they move first you know, terrorism started in Saudi, in Iraq, in Syria, and Egypt. So it was regional, local. It was local. Then it moved to the global arena, and now it's coming back to the local. So what we see today, whether is in the Sahel countries or in East Africa or in the Middle East, 
we see terrorist organizations are now adopting a local agenda rather than a global agenda. And that's why they are getting more followers. So for example, HTS in Syria is talking about issues that pertain to the Syrian people rather than the global jihad that bin Laden used to talk about. And ISIS has morphed into localized groups as well. So you might find ISIS still in Syria, you might find, but it's part of another organization, right? You might find ISIS in Malaysia and Indonesia or in Pakistan, or I'm sure it will be back in Afghanistan after we leave by September 1, which is of course two decades since we got in there. And so the threat is real. The threat is changing, even though I don't think they have the means today to conduct a spectacular operations as 9-11. I mean, to conduct that spectacular operation as 9-11 would require all kinds of global connections and resources. And so they might not have the means to do these types of operations, but locally, they still are as lethal as ever. And because of, especially the ISIS jihadists, unlike Osama bin Laden jihadists, Osama bin Laden were more ideological. There, a few experts got involved in 9-11, but ISIS, they were field fighters. They know weapons, they know social media, they know technology, they know the dark side of technology. They know how to communicate using the dark side of technology and, and the internet. And they have experience with weapons and experience with lethality. So they are more committed or even if they are equally committed, but certainly they are more lethal. Mm -hmm. And so even though they might not be able to conduct spectacular operations, but in different countries, they can easily conduct operations that would kill 20, 30, 40, 50 people, right? Perhaps not 3,000 and not bring down two huge skyscrapers, but they do operations on much smaller scale, but it is there. The other important point is that the factors, the drivers that drove terrorism in the 80s and 90s continue to be with us today. I mean, look at Lebanon, look at Syria, look at Yemen, look at Libya. They are not only, and Iraq, by the way, is not a success story at all, and, and to be followed by Afghanistan. So we have a number of countries in the greater Middle East, from Marrakesh to Bangladesh, that are failing states, mm -hmm. or on the verge of being failing states. I mean, look at youth unemployment is enough to get that picture of the tremendous unemployment among youth in those countries. Now, not to say that every unemployed kid is going to do terrorism, but when a kid in the Muslim world has no money to get married, has to stay in his parents' house, has no job, has no future, and so begin to look at the gun and fighting as some sort of a status symbol. I mean, that's a psychological thing that we cannot underestimate. We, we have to create conditions through engagement to bring hope 
to attempt to bring hope to these groups and societies in the Muslim world. It's a somewhat grim uh, conclusion to our discussion. I mean, the fact that the terrorist threat, which you pinpointed in the 1970s, has changed but continues, and the conditions driving certainly successful recruitment of young people to the cause is also continuing. So (laughs) maybe to conclude, I could ask you, and this is obviously a very broad question, I don't expect you to have all the answers, but, you know, there is a new president of the United States. He's actually on his first international visit to Europe at present as we speak, and we hopefully see an improvement in the bilateral relationship across the Atlantic in addressing economic issues, all sorts of issues, but obviously, crucially, many of these security and foreign policy issues where Europe and the United States don't always see eye to eye, but certainly I think strive to, you know, so if you were advising President Biden today, where would you be advising him to start? How can he reset policy in this field? Very, very good question. I am a bit optimistic about our president, really, in that he is moving away from forever wars, the so-called forever wars, and moving away from militarization as the first course of action, moving away from providing armaments as the first course of action, and reinserting human rights and community engagement as part of his foreign policy. I mean, I was that optimistic in the beginning of the Obama administration, but then, of course, we were still stuck in Afghanistan and Guantanamo and Iraq. And so I am optimistic in that I see the new foreign policy is moving away from engaging regimes at the expense of engaging communities. And so uh, that's how he reacted even to MBS in Saudi Arabia, and how he even reacted to Netanyahu. So I'm optimistic in that as human rights and diversity emerge as important concepts in foreign policy, then the military support of these dictators and autocrats will wane. And the second part, I hate to say it, I'm optimistic about is that the Middle East is no longer on the top of the agenda of this administration. I mean, there is kind of a fading of Pax Americana in the Middle East, which means forcing countries to cooperate with each other and work with each other and forcing regimes to deal with their peoples because regimes in the past have always relied on us to support them militarily and politically. Well, this administration is moving slowly but surely away from that. And that is a cause for optimism. And that might be a a nice optimistic note to end the program. Professor McLeay, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I really think uh, your insights, your experience and your perspective are are. Uh, extremely well informed and also uh, really interesting and refreshing so thank you for your time really delighted to have you join this podcast and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again in the future thank you so much thank you so much for having me it has been a pleasure and I look forward to it
you've enjoyed our discussion, please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 